Hi, Hava. Hello, Michael. Hi, we're recording a pod today. That's what's yes, going on. Yes, we're recording a podcast. It's true. That's what we do. How am I? <laughs> You'd like to know? <laughs> sure. Hi, how are you? I'm feeling jacked. Jacked on the vax. Yeah, I'm actually feeling wobbly, so wobbly. Yeah, I just got the second vaccine dose. I think it made me kind of manic. That's weird. That's very weird. And then I had a fever, and, and then I was achy, and mm-hmm. and I'm still a little shaky. But uh, I am excited. Is it safe <laughs> to say ambivalent a little bit about this episode? Nervous, you might say. Nervous. I'm a little nervous, even though I've, you know... I, I'm the one who's been pushing for it. Well, not pushing for it. It's but. true. This was your brainchild. Yeah, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Hava, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. I'm excited. So a market basket opened in Warwick. For those listeners who don't live in New England might not know, Market Basket is this really good grocery store that heretofore has only existed in Massachusetts. I'm going to have Market Basket mark. Market basket access. Market basket access. You're telling me a market fucking basket. Warwick market basket in access. Warwick. Yeah, yeah. Why do I not live in Warwick? <laughs> I don't know. That's where my BF lives right now. Until we move in together. Oh my god. Yeah, because Market Basket is great, right? You agree with that assessment? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's better than all the grocery stores I've ever been to. Yeah, it's ever. the best New England grocery store. So yeah, so me and my roommate slash really good friend are going to go to this new mask mark mar- <laughs> to this new Market Basket for the very first time tonight, and I'm really excited. Is it like the opening of the like? Is it, it opened yesterday? I think. We're going to go an hour before closing tonight to try to have an uncrowded experience. Can you please get me like a jar of pepperoncini peppers sliced? Michael, I can barely accomplish my own errands. Why do I live in Massachusetts? Why do I live? <laughs> I don't know. I guess because our time where you tried to move to Providence went quite poorly. Well, yeah, you know. But that's not Providence's fault. No, no, it isn't. It's she who shall not be named fault right 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 we're gonna talk today about some stuff that we haven't really been naming on the pod before it's true it's true it's gonna be a listener voicemail episode and it's also gonna be an israel palestine episode which is not really a topic we've even touched on like at all in the show before i feel like we also haven't talked about it because the way things work on the internet is such that it's incredibly scary to talk about any controversial topic even if you're trying to do it with a lot of care it's just like really scary because people really like to bite each other's heads off so we're proceeding very cautiously into this territory you know i think it's timely because of everything that's happening right now Mm-hmm. if you're listening to this sometime in the future we're a couple weeks after the israeli military stormed the temple mound right and now actually a ceasefire is about to go into effect so it's been about 11 days of I guess what I would call overt warfare in Jerusalem, mostly, but also all over. And so a couple of weeks ago, before all this started, actually, we got a voicemail from a listener, and we can play it for you now. Hi, Hava and Michael. I love your podcast. I'm learning so much, and I'm really grateful. I was really struck by your last episode, Mud-Blooded. I had just been in a Zoom sesh 
called Parenting Through a Jewish Lens, we were talking about Israel. And I had a different perspective than the rabbis. There was something in the last episode. It was the part about what makes you think that your blood is better than his. For me, it was affirming of my strong conviction that it's not right what is going on in Israel in how Palestinian people are being treated. And this unquestioning support of the state of Israel is problematic. It made me go back to something I'd read in Jill Hammer's book, The Jewish Book of Days, on the 21st of Nisan. It's called The Songs of Angels, the seventh day of Passover. I'll just read a little bit from it. In a well-known midrash, the angels are so delighted by the rescue of the Hebrews, they want to sing praises. The Holy One instead commands the angels to sit silently while the Israelites are entitled to be glad they are free of their oppressors. The angels must remember that the Egyptians, too, are creatures of the Holy One. Their death is a cause for sadness, not rejoicing. And then from the Babylonian Talmud, Megillah 10b, the angels of the heavenly court wanted to sing, but the Holy One said, my creatures are drowning in the sea and you want to sing songs? A lot of the time within the Jewish community, because there has been so much trauma about being the victim so many times in regard to like present-day Israel, there's this like not wanting to look at the harm that's being done because we're just so focused on maintaining power as a Jewish people and maintaining a Jewish state. So something in my gut is like red flag, looking for answers within Jewish texts to help me get some clues about like how should we be looking at this anonymous secret listener thank you very much for your question well we know who you are listener we know who you are you're not anonymous to us but you're anonymous to everyone else yeah but thank you so much for this voicemail i appreciate you reaching out on a vulnerable topic and it inspired us to make this episode which i hope you know is of some service to people so Thanks for sending us this voicemail. I think one of the big questions that we feel like we have some amount of knowledge and can talk about is why are so many American Jews so accepting and willing to defend what seems to be very clearly bad things that Israel is doing? People who in other areas seem justice-minded and very thoughtful, why are their opinions so different in this particular case? Right. And I think also, if you're a listener to this show, you probably have some amount of affection for like the Jewish people and the Jewish tradition. I'm just guessing. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So I think people who care about justice and Palestinian liberation and the Jewish people can often find ourselves perplexed when we see a tradition that sometimes can seem so liberatory and a people that can sometimes seem so liberatory being used for something that's quite the opposite, something that's kind of a what I would call a horrifying atrocity. Yeah, yeah, it's it's horrifying, (laughs) I would say. Yeah, and how do we understand? How do we deal with that cognitive dissonance and struggle in community? How do we understand the source of this sort of cognitive dissonance? And then how do we turn that understanding into meaning? We should just at least mention in passing, what generates all this behavior is, of course, to some extent associated with sort of like structural 
issues like colonialism and sort of accumulation of power and wealth. And that's definitely an important lens to understand both the conflict itself, the oppression of Palestinian people, and also to understand Jewish behaviors through a structural lens. We're not really going to talk as much about the structural lens today, partially because so many more politically wise and sort of like adept people have like written so much good material about that. And we are mere babies, not really qualified to provide a really incisive and innovative, like structural analysis. But it's good for us to just mention like there are very important structural reasons and wiser people have written about them and those are out there and we're now going to talk about the other half of the equation which is sort of the individualistic and community psychology approach which is like i think what the listener is touching on a little bit when they mention trauma i think oftentimes a lot of leftist analysis kind of ends at power and wealth i'm curious about like why people are triggered to be very very concerned with accumulating power and wealth in particular circumstances what are the psychological motivations behind what's going on right and one of the reasons we sort of feel more free to talk about this approach to the issue is we are for better or for worse american jews who are both to some extent sort of like implicated in whatever psychological forces create the bad behavior we're talking about. Right, right. So like we're a part of the thing that we're going to talk shit about. And that's why we feel empowered to talk shit about it. Yeah. Okay. So what are the psychological reasons that American Jews react to Israel and Palestine this way? Specifically, why are American Jews so willing to, for instance, defend Israeli war crimes? The listener brings up trauma. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that they mention. That seems pretty spot on to me. Uh, <laughs> that reminds me of how like we don't have the victim of a crime sit on a jury. We kind of collectively understand that there's something about being traumatized by something that can sometimes impair moral judgment. I mean, I challenge that a little bit. For one, I'm loath to use the American justice system as any kind of positive analog. Sure, sure, sure. And for two, you know, I think it hasn't been universally successful, but there have been some pretty successful experiments with restorative justice frameworks where the victim is much more involved in the process. But I do think that there is definitely, quote, trauma brain involved. And I think more even than just Or in addition to communal trauma in the Jewish community, triggering people to always feel like unsafe, you know, which is this phenomenon in the field of understanding trauma called hypervigilance, where if you're traumatized, oftentimes you become sort of always on alert for future traumas, whether or not there's a genuine threat or not. And I think definitely most of the American Jewish community lives in that state of hypervigilance sort of based off of historical and communal trauma. And also, we sort of keep telling stories to ourselves that refresh that state. You know, not only are we in hypervigilance, but we like talk about our own hypervigilance a lot and sort of reinforce that role of victim on the defense. And I think that's something that Israel's explicit political messaging has taken a lot of advantage of. The political messaging is often explicitly sort of presenting Israel as like a haven for all Jews, the safe place where all these threatened people can go. To accept that narrative, you have to believe, one, that you are under real threat at all times. 
and for two that you could go there and in some sense be protected. So trauma is definitely one aspect of it. But I think another aspect that's is a little bit more hidden is fear of assimilation plays into this. Say more about that. Well, this was a perspective that I didn't have until I actually read friend of the show Sam Biagetti's essay that was written published in American Affairs. It's called Express Train to Nowhere, Class and the Crisis of the Modern Jewish Soul. Wow, that's a hefty title. This is one of the smart people we were referencing who talks about this issue in a way that's perhaps more astute than us. Yeah, but one of the things that he brings up is that there was an older generation of Jews who really weren't so pro-Israel. They were a lot more traditional, like the generation of Jews who came to the United States in the early 20th century. And it's their children who became pro-Israel. One of the things that Sam alludes to in this article is this idea that the children became more pro-Israel because they were feeling insecure and ashamed even about the fact that they were assimilating and becoming non-Jewish in the way that they conceived of what being a Jew meant. Right. I hadn't made this connection yet, but in last week's episode, which was a crossover episode with my friend Jay's podcast, Couplet, I talked about the poetry of Yehuda Amichai, who's a Israeli poet and specifically an Israeli war poet, I think. And Yehuda Amichai mentions that his embrace of Zionism was sort of a rebellion against his parents. He was raised in an Orthodox Jewish household. He said he felt like he was faced with either choosing Zionism or communism as sort of an expression of his identity. And the way he puts it is he essentially chose at random, not out of any belief in either principle, which I think really is like a specific example of kind of the phenomenon you're talking about where like the Jewish identity couldn't be done away with entirely by that generation. Mm -hmm. And it also, many of them felt couldn't be channeled into a religious impulse. And that was sort of capitalized upon by the Zionist movement. Which is funny because like we're in the same predicament now, right? Queer Jews, lefty Jews in general. What do we do with Judaism? And our, at least this podcast is an example of trying to figure out what to do with that. Prior generations went Zionist. Right. This is sort of getting off on a tangent, but I also think there's this thing that happens amongst queer leftists because I see so many queer and trans leftists convert to Judaism or sort of like rediscover their Jewish heritage. And I think in the same way, there's sort of like a spiritual impulse that doesn't have a means of expression on the left. That is a lot of that is getting channeled into Judaism right now, which is dope as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm into it too. I mean, I feel that we're in the Talmud boom, baby. Just being a leftist without a spiritual component burns me out or would burn me out. Right. I can relate to that Zionist generation, like trying to do something. But I think because their Jewish identity is wrapped up in it, if they were to suddenly change their political beliefs, it doesn't just challenge a political issue that has to do with a specific place. It goes deeper down to their Jewish identity. Right. I think that really gets down to The question we're trying to talk about here, why American Jews are so willing to defend essentially whatever Israel does. And part of that is because not only individual Jewish identities, but American Jewish collective identity has become so intertwined with Zionism that 
I think for folks, if that were truly to be challenged, then Judaism would have to be for them, for those communities and people rebuilt from the ground up. And that's a very scary concept, especially if you already have a story about yourself that you are sort of a beleaguered victim, you're probably going to be that much more hesitant to be willing to challenge you know, your sort of communal foundation in that way. It reminds me of like going to therapy (laughs) or like doing a 12-step program. It's totally rewiring your brain. Yeah, I mean, there are people out there doing work, helping people who are questioning their Zionist upbringing sort of work their way to a new political understanding. And big kudos to those people doing the work of helping others through that sort of transitional period. All right, so this is our diagnosis of what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, we got out our DSM, which is just a tractate of Talmud. (laughs) Let's actually jump into some Talmud. Our dear, beloved Calder referenced a piece of Talmud from Megillah 10b, which I'm just going to read in translation because, you know, we already talked about it a little bit and we're going to spend more time talking in meta. But they reference this piece from Megillah 10b, which is a midrash given by Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Yochanan said, what is the meaning of that which is written? And the one came not near the other all the night. So this is a verse, Exodus 14:20 that has to do with some sort of mystical happenings during the crossing of the Red Sea and the end of the Exodus and all that stuff. So Reb Yochanan drashes this to say, the ministering angels wanted to sing their song, for the angels would sing songs to each other. But the Holy One, blessed be he, said, the work of my hands, the Egyptians are drowning at sea, and you wish to sing songs? This indicates God does not rejoice over the downfall of the wicked. We're having a debate on this page, the rabbis are having a debate about whether God rejoices at the destruction of the wicked or not. And this is the proof text that Rabbi Yochanan brings to say, God does not rejoice at the downfall of the wicked. I think this is a great piece of Talmud. I'm really glad the listener brought it in because I think it would have to be on the show someday. You know, we were always going to talk about this. I think it speaks to a way in which this identity of being under siege or being under threat is sort of like encoded into the religious DNA of Judaism, Mm -hmm. which has given rise to, you know, tons of beautiful stuff. And also this is one of those moments where it sort of doesn't serve us so well, you know, especially like American Jews. I think we have this idea of being an underdog that we take in from our Judaism, which to some extent bears out in reality and in stories like this, but also that's not really the place we're in as a people politically now. I guess I'm saying that's a new and challenging situation for Judaism. Jews haven't been not the underdog for a very long time, and I don't think Judaism has quite figured out how to deal with this new political situation. The listener brought this piece because it really spoke to them about the care of our tradition for all life, which I think is true. Definitely, that's part of our tradition. And also, I just want to bring literally right after this, where we learn that God won't let anyone rejoice over the downfall of the wicked, Reb Elazar comes and says, God does not rejoice over the downfall of the wicked, but he causes others to rejoice. 
And Reb Elazar brings a proof text for that, which just has to do with the tense of a verb. And we don't need to get into it. You can go look it up on Megillatinby if you want. Yeah, that's kind of wild. That kind of implies that God wants you to rejoice, even though God isn't rejoicing. The way the Talmud makes it seem is that God would rejoice if he could, but he doesn't. So he causes you to do it. You know, this text really encapsulates for me that our tradition is a big mishmash of great stuff and really shitty stuff. And sometimes they're like right next to each other like this. So you can really get the contrast, you know, and you have this teaching that really spoke to our listener about the sacred value of all life. And then right after that, you have someone to say, but also fuck that. When I take a step back and see things like this, Jews saying really dumb things or doing really dumb things, I do think Judaism is aware of this phenomenon. And I think the structure of the Talmud reveals that if we as Jews believed that we were always correct, why would we preserve a dialectic? Why would we share dissenting opinions? Why would we have a kind of a form of minutes? Why wouldn't we just have an instruction manual of moral dictates? So I think the whole structure of the Talmud suggests that we're not perfect. So one thing that I wanted to bring was this letter that Ramban, the 12th century sage Nachmanides, wrote to his son. He's telling his son that he needs to have humility, one of the lines that I like is the following. Understand and observe that Whoever feels that he's greater than others is rebelling against the kingdom of heaven. He is wearing God's garments. As it is said, God reigns and wears the clothes of pride in Psalms 93.1. I think part of the connection I want to make of this here to sort of how to deal with all of these sort of psychological messes we've talked about is like, Just know that throughout history, we've known that our communities and our tradition itself is not perfect. And on top of that, our understanding of them is not perfect. And to me, that sort of frees me up. You know, I don't have to make excuses for Judaism or for Jews just on the basis that we're sort of part of the same communal organism. To me, it's in a sense an act of humility to say, like, this sucks It is a form of Judaism. I don't love the argument of it being not my Judaism or like that's not Jewish because I think that's kind of a cop out. But it sort of frees me up to be like, yeah, it is a part of the thing I'm a part of and it sucks. Yes. And dissent is also part of it. And acknowledgement that the wise can be dumb is Mm -hmm. is part of it, too. So that's something that. I, in general, like, I mean, I love meditating on the idea that humans are very fallible. I know that's generally attributed to Catholics, but, you know, they took it from Jews originally. Right. I really gravitate towards that, you know, whenever I'm feeling particularly shitty about when people who I'm in some sort of coalition with, maybe that's Jews, maybe that's Americans, maybe that's the Democratic Party, when I'm disappointed when they do things, I kind of remember, wow, like, humans are fallible, their psychologies get in the way of, you know, sometimes being good. And I'm no exception to that, too. Yeah. 
<laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I think that's very true. I think especially on the left, but also just in sort of liberal Judaism, we can get into a habit of sort of cherry picking out of Judaism. Like we can go find a piece of Talmud to sort of support whatever value I want to support right now. And to me, the deeper journey is sort of grappling with the shitty parts of the tradition that like don't support my values, you know, whether that be Zionism or this shitty piece of Talmud that says, you know, that God causes us to rejoice in the downfall of the wicked. So remind me and the listeners why you want to do that, why you like grappling with this hard stuff. What's the end goal of grappling with that hard, shitty Judaism? I don't know if I like to think about it in a goal-oriented way. To me, the grappling in itself is the goal and the process is the goal. If I had to put a goal on it, I would say I'm trying to move toward a more just world for all and the grappling for me is is a necessary part of sort of helping Judaism be a part of that future by being willing to push back on it and change it as necessary. All right. Okay. I hope you all enjoyed slash, I don't know what emotion I want you to have in response to this episode. Whatever you need to happen, I hope that that happened for you. Mm-hmm. As a part of this episode, I know it's all over the place and it's a bigger issue than we can even really cover in one episode. It's an issue that we can only talk about from our own limited experience. And I hope hearing our perspectives has been helpful. We would love to hear your perspectives. Send us a Patreon message. Send us an email at hi, how are you at gmail.com. Send us a Talmud voicemail. I would love to hear you all's thoughts on this subject because it's one that we're sort of exploring as we make this episode. We are learning about the psychological underpinnings of American Judaism and how to deal with it. Yeah, well, that's it. Next week, we're going to return to some Talmud. I'm excited to bring. I I got some Talmud lined up for you. I'm excited to see what you bring. I'm going to have some Talmud for a bonus episode as well. Sounds good. Okay. Well, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Share our stuff on social media. Tell your friends. Join our Patreon. We really appreciate it. I hope that we move forward into a world where there are a million more sort of radically traditional left Jewish voices out there in the world. But uh, right now, we're one of the few, and, and we appreciate your support in that endeavor. Yeah, we really do. Freaking Shavua Tov, man. Yeah, Shavua Tov. Bye.